Is your life limited by the labels the world and other people have used to define you? Labels you have internalized and apply to yourself every day. Labels like afraid or addict, orphan, damaged goods, failure, maybe even religious. These labels might be sewn into your life with such tight little stitches that they feel like a part of you. They feel like they define you, but that's a lie. If you let him, Jesus can remove those old labels and tattoo new ones onto your soul. Then you'll begin to see yourself as God the Father sees you. The limits will be lifted. Your life will be transformed, a limitless life. thought that meant that he was going to be the very next king. In fact, he'd been one of the greatest warriors. He'd taken on the enemy one-on-one. -on -one. Their greatest warrior, mano y mano, against him and won, and he'd taken down hundreds and thousands afterwards. But now, the king wanted his head. He was on the run. He was a refugee in his own country. He was having to live in the forests, in the desert, in the mountainsides, in the caves, wherever it was he could possibly hide because he could not show his face anywhere. But even while he was in hiding, people did find him. In fact, nearly 600 men had gathered with him. Now they were Interesting characters, to say the best about them. But here they were, they gathered around, and they were now his army. 600 men. How do you feed 600 men? Sometimes it seemed like the forest wasn't big enough. There wasn't enough wild animals in the forest to feed the army that had grown with him. He'd go raid the local villages, but... He's supposed to be king. That doesn't make any sense. He could go make allies with one of the, the enemies, those foreign nations that are around them, but that sure doesn't seem like a good play either. So what is he supposed to do? What's he going to do? So he sits back. He sets up a wall of protection. He uses his men, and they set up in this area off in the countryside, and they begin to protect it. Giant wall. Nothing gets through. And the governor is so pleased. His animals are doing so well. This isn't some small enterprise that he had. No, 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats. And when sheep are well protected, when they don't have to worry or fear about anything and they have enough food to eat, they have the richest coats that's worth high amount of money. These sheep didn't have to worry in the world. He didn't lose one. So it came time for the celebration, for the sheep shearing to go on. 
And because he'd grown up as a shepherd, he knew that there was about to be an abundance of wealth for the governor. And so he sent a few of his men and said, here's what I want you to do. Would you go and approach the governor and his men? Or would you just remind them of who it is that we are? And would you remind them that for the last while, we have not asked anything of them. We haven't taken anything from them. And we haven't allowed anybody else to either. So his men set off. And they went and talked with Nabal and with his men. And when Nabal heard this story about the protection that was given, Nabal looked down. In fact, Nabal, let me just tell you about him for a moment. Nabal was not a very kind man. He was not a very generous man. In fact, the Bible describes him as churlish, right? And that word means kind of bearish and brooding and harsh and rude and all the things that you can picture going along with that. And so when the men come to him, Nabal acknowledges and shows all of the division that exists inside of his country at that moment. And he says to them, who is David? Who is David, this son of Jesse? You know, I hear that many slaves are breaking away from their masters these days. Paul was basically saying, I don't recognize this guy who you're saying is going to be the future king. He's not my king. I serve Saul, and that's it. So David's men ride back. And they tell David about their encounter, how they've been turned away, totally shunned. David heard this. When David heard what had been given back to him. David looks at the men and he sees what it is that they need and he sees the hurt that exists in them and he feels the hurt that exists in him and he says, every single one of you strap on your swords. And David grabbed his and they were headed down to go take care of the problem. You ever been there? You ever had that moment? Maybe not physically, but you certainly have probably had that moment mentally, maybe emotionally, and probably even spiritually. Right? That, that moment where you've put yourself out there, you've done what is right. You've done what you, you thought was the right thing to do, and you wanted something. Maybe you even needed something afterwards. And instead of getting what you needed or what you wanted, you were given the exact opposite. You ever been there? Yeah, we've all been there. We've all been there. And we've all reached the same breaking point that we see David at right here. That point when you are just done. You're done being the one who's being trampled on. You're done on turning the other cheek. You're just done. And you decide you want to do something about it. And usually, 
Usually it's not very pretty when we decide that. And my wife and I right now, we're installing Ikea cabinets. Yeah, yeah. Um, first of all, I think I should probably preface this with saying if you want to do a heat check on your marriage, if you want to find out how your marriage is doing, just get a set of Ikea anything, right? There's no words, just pictures, right? That barely make any sense whatsoever. Before long, before long, it's guaranteed that you're going to know where you stand out in your marriage. So here it was. Our moment, we're building these cabinets, and actually I started about 30 minutes before she did. And there's something that um, experts call the anger and violence ladder, right? There's actually a picture of it, looks a little bit like this. Yeah. Now I know that you probably can't read that, so I actually have another slide that looks like this, right? It's not as pretty though. It's not as pretty the ladder. But here's what happens. Experts say that it all starts with sneaky anger, right? You begin to get mad, and sneaky anger is this place where the anger starts. It builds from, right? This is where the little simple pot shots come out, right? This is where some people would call it passive-aggressive moments take place, right? This is where whining and forgetfulness happen, right? It's all of those things. It's sneaky anger that you're trying to get even through indirect means. Well, I told you that I started the project 30 minutes before my wife ever arrived. And why I could not hang a simple bar on the wall and make it level in 30 minutes is certainly frustrating. And so before she ever walked into the room, I was already mad. But I didn't say to her that I was already mad and frustrated. No, no, I just started throwing the pot shots about where had she been for the last 30 minutes. You can imagine how well that went over. I mean, how hard should it really be to be able to set a level on top of a bar? Sean's telling me it's not hard at all. It was. I'm telling you, the wall was not level. There's no way that it was. So, of course, now there's two of us working on it, and we still can't get the thing level. There's obviously one person's fault that it is here. And so here it was, by the time that I got all the way up to blaming and shaming, I was already three ladders up, three rungs up. It wasn't her fault that I'd been unsuccessful at building this thing. It wasn't her fault that I had gone out and made three cuts on the bar to get it to the right size. None of that was her fault that I was already frustrated. But it didn't matter. I kept flinging the attacks anyways. Got all the way up. We went past swearing and screaming and yelling. All the way up to partly controlled violence. <laughs> Finger pointing. 
That right finger pointing is like, I'm so mad at you. If I could just do anything else, I would right now. But I am restraining myself so that you'll know how mad I am. That's what finger pointing really is, right? Oh, we were there. There were fingers flying everywhere. It's a good thing the tools were all put away at that moment. You know, the next step beyond this is, is that you move on into blind rage. And blind rage only has one goal. Win at all costs. Doesn't matter. Experts say this is the most dangerous area because it's blind. You no longer are thinking clearly. You're no longer acting on anything except for your emotions. Usually, you're out of control. Some of you are feeling my pain right now. You've been through this ladder maybe as early as yesterday, like me. And you can bet I said things I regret. It happened. My wife is amazing. I love her a whole lot, and there is nothing in that ladder about what I said that showed any of that. David, in this moment, was somewhere between partly controlled violence and blind rage. And he looks at all of his men and he says, strap up, boys. And he puts on his sword too, and they're going to go teach this dude, Nabal, a lesson. And it's a lesson that he'll never forget. In fact, it'll be the last lesson he'll ever learn. Because David's intent is he's going to go kill Nabal and wipe out every male that's there on the property. I want to make an important, an important point right here, and that is hurt people hurt Hurt people hurt people. David was hurt. And I don't mean just by the disrespect that was shown by Nabal. He was hurting from all of the running that he'd been doing. He was hurting from all of the hiding. He was hurting from tiptoeing around. And he was hurting because the guy who had anointed him, the guy who said, I believe in you, the guy who said, you are going to be the next king, has just died. It's the first verse in chapter 25 where this whole story unfolds. Samuel, the guy who meant everything to David, has just died. David is hurting. And it's because of that he's about to act out on all of this hurt. Because hurt people hurt people. That's the vicious cycle of sin. You've done it. I've done it. It's what happens. In fact, we've all hurt someone in the midst of our hurting. It's a truth that we can't escape. And sometimes, sometimes we do one worse. I, I think we generally would call it kick the dog syndrome, right? This is that moment where you get hurt somewhere, maybe at work. Right? And you can't hurt somebody else at work, you'll lose your job. And so instead of hurting somebody at work, you move over and you do it somewhere else. You exert that power and control that you lost in this other environment and you do it somewhere else. Maybe in your neighborhood. Maybe at home. 
And so you come and you take out this anger and frustration on somebody else. You're way up the ladder before they even realize what's gone on. So David, who was hurting and hurt, he rides off to go do something about wealth. In his own words, here's what he says. He says, he, that's Nabal, has returned me evil for good. And he says, God, do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I would leave as much as one of these men who all belong to him standing. And we've done this too. Right? David's having this like dialogue right here. And uh, actually, I learned something this past week. I didn't know this, right? And some of you may not know this. Some of this, this may blow some of your minds. But I was, was reading news articles this week and I came across Board Panda, right? Don't judge, okay? Right? And this guy on Board Panda, his name was Kyle Plant Emoji. He wrote this. He says, fun fact. Some people have an internal dialogue and others do not. In other words, some people can hear their voice in their head and talk with it, have a conversation with it, and other people can't. Okay, hang on. I now have to know something about everybody in the room. I have to know which one of these two people you are. All right? So, real quickly, if you can hear your voice in your head, Right? If it's something that like you have like audible conversations, you just hear it there, or you're reading and like you hear your own voice reading whatever it is on the page in your head, would you just real quickly just raise your hands for me? Okay, now, hands down. Now, those of you who just looked around the room and saw people with their hands up and you're like, those people are crazy. I have never heard a voice in my head ever. Would you raise your hands for me? Yeah, there's a few of you out there, right? I had no idea that this was the case because I'm one of the first ones, all right? I, I can be driving down the road. I don't even know that my radio is not on because it's so loud inside of my head with the things that are going on. At night, I have to watch an iPad show so that my brain will shut up so that I can go to sleep. Like, I don't have to hit my wife and say, be quiet. I have to tell my own brain to be quiet at night. And so I assumed in this moment that as David was coming down, that he was having this conversation in his head, like a self-conversation, like, hey, you know, like, here's what's going on, here's what you're thinking, like, he's getting himself all worked up about everything, but that may not, he may have been saying this out loud, right, because these people who don't hear the voice in their head, they have to, like, verbalize it out loud in order to, for it to happen, they just, like, they, like, see words in there, I don't even know how to explain it to you about what goes on, it's a whole other side, it blew my, my mind to, to understand this. So here it is. David verbalizing this as he's heading down the mountain, saying these things and getting himself all geared up for the fight. Meanwhile, while David was gathering the troops and getting his head full of steam, quite literally, right? One of the servants rushes back to Nabal's wife. Her name is Abigail. And he shares the entire story with her about what's taking place. He says this. He says, they, that's David and his men, they were a wall to us both by night and by day. And while we were with them keeping the sheep, 
Now therefore, um, know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all of his house. He is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. That's pretty brazen for a servant to say, right? He's saying this about the master to the master's wife. And Abigail is faced with this choice. Now the story leads us to understand and believe that Nabal is a really bad guy. He has repaid evil for something good. And David is about to even the score. Right? He's about to get even with Nabal and he's going to give back evil for evil. In the Old Testament, right, the Old Covenant, this was an acceptable thing. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. This was the way that it worked. So if somebody did evil to you, you could go do evil to them and you were fine. That was the way it was supposed to be. So here it is. Here's Abigail. She's married to this awful man. She deals with him all the time. In fact, many scholars, doesn't specifically state this in the Bible, but many scholars that I read suggested that it was totally within the realm of possibilities that when it's saying that this man was bearish and brutish and all kinds of awfulness, that he was probably also abusive. Here it is. David's about to be her salvation, right? That's what all of us would think. He's, this guy's about to get what he deserves. He finally picked on somebody who is going to pick back. And he's not going to be able to take it. And I'm going to be free of him. I mean, that's fully what I expect, right? That's probably what most of you would expect. That's what most of us would think. If, hey, we'll just let nature run its course right here. And instead... Instead, Abigail steps into the story. Abigail gathers together 200 fig cakes, 200 loaves of bread. Now, I don't know about you, right? I mean, I know that they were about to have a big celebration, a big party, but I don't know anybody who has 200 fig cakes and 200 loaves of bread just ready to go. Right? But she does, she, she like gets everybody on it and she's like, we're going to, we got to get this done because everything depends on this. And so she gets it all, they get it all loaded up and she quickly goes out the door to go meet David and she catches him halfway down. Now we don't hear her rehearse speech. Maybe she has that internal dialogue and he doesn't, right? This is the first time I've ever thought this. But she gets there, she gets there, and something unexpected happens. Something that changed the entire course of the events and changes the direction of David. Let's check it out. It says, when Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed down to the ground. She fell at his feet and she said, on me alone, my lord, would be all of the guilt. 
Please let your servant speak in your ears, and please hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, which is what his name means, fool. Nabal is his name. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord who you sent. Okay. This is very, very strange. Right? Some of you are like, oh, really? Yeah. Abigail is like, she is the wife of an incredibly wealthy man. Right? Could you imagine for a second, right? Melinda Gates. Okay? Bill Gates' wife. Incredibly wealthy. Right? Could you imagine her getting down on her knees in front of somebody? Right? No way. You'd be like, what are you doing? What's going on? But here it was. Abigail kneels down as an act of humbling herself. Now, we don't do a lot of kneeling down in front of people to demonstrate humility to them. But there are certainly, and you would certainly know, ways that you could demonstrate humility to someone in our culture today. Right? This is one of the ways that she did it then. Then, check it out, she calls herself a servant. She doesn't just say that she's a servant one time. She doesn't just say it two times. In the course of the conversation where she is trying to get his attention 14 times, she calls herself servant. And another seven times, she refers to him as her Lord. And this totally catches David off guard. This is not what he was expecting. It grabs his attention because Abigail does something that is incredibly effective. Abigail doesn't focus on David's past. She doesn't focus even on David's present. Instead, she focuses on the potential that she sees in him and the potential of what God has called him to be. All right? Here's what she says. She says, would you please forgive the trespasses of your servant? For the Lord will certainly make you, your Lord, a sure house. Because you, Lord, are fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in, in you as long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, in other words, she knows what's going on in this world. She knows that daily he is fighting this battle. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. All right, if you've got your Bibles open, you should highlight that. Right, we're going to come back to that. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. You should highlight that too. We're going to come back. All right. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, then you shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause. For my Lord is working salvation for himself. So Abigail begins to treat him as if he has already become the person she believes him to be. 
She says, this is the potential that I know that you will become. God is going to make you strong. All right, ladies in the room, you should just take note of this for a second. All right? You should just take note of what it is that she is doing. Because when you speak to us, when you speak to us as men, even when we know what it is that you are doing, all right? When you speak to the potential of who it is that you see us becoming, it's not about our past, not even about the present, but when you begin to speak about the potential of who we are, we bow up. Yeah, I want to be that. I can do that. Honey, I see you as such a strong man that one day you could be able to take the trash out with one arm. Bet I can. I got it right now. Watch this. Right? When you speak into the potential of who it is that we are as men, you get it in the presence. When you speak into the potential, you get it in the present. Now, I'm not talking about some sort of manipulation here where you're like, hey, if I tell him that I want him to be this, no, you, you can't manipulate this sort of thing, but I am talking about an, an actual reality about something that happens that when you talk into the actual potential of who your husband is, you'll begin to see that in the present moments right now. And this is what she does. And when she does it, David begins to hear her. And he steps up to this idea about who it is that he is supposed to be. And then she says, I told you to highlight this, your life shall be bound in the bundle of the living. You're like, what in the world does this mean, Pastor Charles? How many of you guys carry a wallet? Anybody? Yeah. My wallet is leather, and it's like um, um, Eric Costanza's wallet, right? The one that, like, is stuffed so full that, like, one butt cheek is, like, way up in the air while you sit down on it. I can't even, my chiropractor told me not even to put it in my back pocket anymore. He's like, got to put it in your front pocket. You've got too much stuff in there. Um, so, this picture right here is a picture about what somebody would do with their valuable stuff. They would take a piece of leather, right? And they would stick their valuable stuff inside the middle of the leather, whether that was their coinage or whatever it was. And Abigail says, this is like your life going right here. And then they would take and they would fold it in half, right? And then kind of like a wallet, they would take and fold it one more time. And then they would have a strap, and they would wrap the strap around the wallet over and over and over and over again, so that nothing could get inside of what was in here. And then they would take, and they would stuff it inside their waistband, right, and hide it. And she says, listen, David, your life shall be bound like this. It's wrapped up, it's valuable, it's precious, and God has tightly wrapped it up and he's put it in his waistband. Nobody's getting to it. She was saying, even though you feel roughshod right now, you need to remember that the potential that I'm seeing is that you are going to be safe and come through this okay. Because God has got you. And then, then only after she's spoken to all this potential, then Abigail uses her memory, which ladies, you have the best memories, right? 
you have the best memories. You have the best ability to remember something. There are details that my wife brings out sometimes that I'm like, really? That happened? I don't remember that at all. I promise, more times than not, I've been proven that she's right. And so Abigail uses that, and she says, listen, your enemies will be taken out by a sling. She's saying, remember that guy named Goliath that you faced long ago? Remember the provision that God made for you? God took him out, and all you used was a sling. And she says, all of your enemies are going to be just like that when you rely on God. David, your potential to be something incredible, but it only happens when you rely on God, just like you, you did that one time with Goliath. God took him down through you by a slingshot. God's going to continue to do the same thing if you'll just rely on him. What an incredible picture. What an incredible picture of grace that Abigail has made. Right? Now, grace, the New Testament tells us that grace is this idea of unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. In other words, it's getting things that we clearly don't deserve and clearly have not earned. David, David tried to say, right, that he had earned the food that he wanted from the ball. That's what he was attempting to say. But listen, let's just be straight with each other. David really hadn't earned anything. He was asking to be included in it, but he hadn't earned it. And here it was, Abigail is right there before him, and she's not only giving him the food that he hadn't earned. She's not only offering that to him, she's also bestowing on him the title of king. Right? She's already bestowing that on him. And she not only does that, but then she begins to take the blame for everything that her husband has done wrong. And finally, finally, she protects David from getting innocent bloodshed on his hands. All of that is grace. It's grace. You know, interestingly enough, the word grace in Hebrew is the word hen. It looks like chin, but it's actually pronounced hen. Right? And it makes this incredible word picture. So let me just walk you through the, the pieces of this word picture for just a second. The first one is the letter het, right? It's the first letter that's in it. Um, oh, I got these out of order for you, so you'll have to jump one on me in just a second. So um, the first one is the, the letter het, and the letter het is a picture of a gate, right? Of a fence, of a protection. And somebody did an incredible drawing that I just had to use whenever I saw it. Right? Little sheep that are in there. And het is like the protection that's all around it. Right? And then the second letter, the second letter that makes up this word chin is noon. Right? And noon, right, is this word picture of a fish. And it actually means life. Right? Or life giving. So here it is. This word quite literally makes this picture of Grace is protecting life, right? The word grace is this idea of protecting life. And in Hebrew thought, grace was described as this, as actually being 
in the camp. But there was a difference between being in the camp and being outside of the camp, right? So here it is. She is saying, listen, I'm, I'm giving you grace. I'm protecting you. I'm protecting you from yourself. I'm protecting you from what you're about to do. I'm protecting you from all of these things, right? She's like, listen, David, this is what it's like to be in the camp. This is what it's like when your life is wrapped up in the wallet of God, tucked away, safe for his keeping. This is what it's like when God takes care of it with his sling. Now, Andy Stanley has a, a great quote when he's talking about this story. Um, Andy Stanley says that Abigail basically is asking David this question in all of this speech. He's, he says that she says, follow with me there. After everything is over, after everything's all said and done, and this is nothing but a story. So this moment in time right here is nothing but a story that we will look back on and tell. What do you want it to say about you? What do you want this story to tell? What do you want people to tell when they tell this story one day? She said, her answer to this story was that it should be a story of grace. It should be a story of getting something that you don't deserve. It should be a story of my husband getting something that he doesn't deserve. It should be a story about you getting a title that God has given to you. You were just a shepherd boy, the youngest of 12 sons out in the middle of the field. You didn't deserve it, but it's still yours. This is a story of grace. David looks at her after hearing all of this and says, bless you and thank you and peace be on you. And he accepts her grace and he takes his men and they walk away. Huge. Huge. But the story isn't over yet. Right? Check it out. Here's what happens. God wasn't done with this story of grace because some of you are sitting out there and you're like, well, that's a lot of grace, but what about Abigail? Like she has to go back into this house with this abusive man. And that just doesn't seem like much of God's grace inside of that. If you're going to tell me that this whole story is about grace, then what about Abigail? Let's check it out. She goes back home. Nabal is there. He's had this huge party, huge festival to celebrate all of the amazing wealth that has just come in that they know that they're going to have, and he's drunk. And so Abigail says, you know what? I'm not going to talk to him right now. I'm going to wait until morning when he sobers up. And so the next morning she shares with him, and here's what happens. This is what the Bible says. It says when he heard everything, his heart died within him and he became like a stone and 10 days later the Lord struck Nabal down and he died wait he gets better when David heard that Nabal was dead he said blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult that I received at the hand of Nabal and he has kept back his servant from doing wrong the Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. And then David sinned. 
and he spoke to Abigail, and he took her as his wife. And the engine says that she became his wife. What? The only thing they could have added there was like, and they lived happily ever after. That's an incredible story. It's an incredible picture of grace. You know, someone said this. I don't know who said it. I couldn't find it again, but I loved it so much that I at least kept it. They said this. They said that when wisdom exceeds desire, right? When wisdom exceeds desire, that's where grace is found. So true. Abigail could have let her desires to be free to exceed the wisdom to protect. David could have let his desire to hurt Nabal exceed the wisdom that he needed God. And you and I, we can do the same thing, can't we? We can let our desires exceed all of the wisdom that we have or that we get or that we're given. And it always comes down to that same question that Abigail was asking David, right? When everything is over and there's nothing but a story left to tell, what is the story that will be told? Abigail's grace was extraordinary. In fact, I would go so far as to say that it was limitless because it breaks the limits of everything we could possibly imagine. It's limitless really because she was seeking grace for someone else that did not even deserve it. That's really what Jesus did for you and for me though, isn't it? He offered up protection. He offered up an invitation to be in the camp. He offered up the ability, the invite for us to get into the wallet. speaks to our potential, not our present, not our past. And better than that, it gives us a change to the end of our story. That's grace. That's grace. Because if we're honest, none of us, none of us have earned it. We've not earned that kind of unmerited favor from Jesus at all. Nothing we can do to get it. But Jesus says, if you're willing to accept me, I give it to you all free. Free. That's grace. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're here and you're like, you know what? If I was being honest about myself, I'm not in the camp, I'm out of the camp. I don't have God's grace in my life, and I need it. At the end of service, I'll be in the back of the room. And I'll share with you three simple letters, A, B, and C, about how it is that you can get God's grace in your life. Don't leave here without it. Don't leave being outside of the camp, outside of the walls of protection outside of everything that God desires for you, outside of the change to the end of your story. Let's pray.
Father, what an incredible story. What an incredible picture Abigail makes of grace. God, it's only through your grace that I can even begin to try to give that kind of grace to somebody else. God, I pray that through faith, I can begin to do things in grace. That I can take the same kind of grace that you've displayed to me and display it to others. that I can take those moments when it's, everything's razor thin that I'm running up the ladder as fast as I can and stop and remember the grace that you've given me. That I can see the potential, that I can see the end of the story that is so different. And God, that I can use that to help me make a change. God, that my desires would not exceed the wisdom and the knowledge of knowing who it is that to have